welcome back um, for the final Bowie chat. Um, you have listened to the 90s and the noughties, and we're now going to try and pick uh, our way through this with the voices that you've heard, Jonathan and Emma. Um, we're going to go straight over to Jonathan, and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, no tin machine? No tin machine, I would say. Hey! Hey! Why? Because I mean, why? I mean, I was expressly told not to do Tim Machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's they wouldn't let me wolf. do it. Yeah, That's so unfair. We, to be honest, we did when we put this together. We said we're not doing Tin Machine. Um, all right, so there was no Tin Machine. <laughs> Bowie has come back. It's black tie, no white noise. Um, is he still the mega star? from Let's Dance, uh, what's going on uh, in, his, in his life at the, that time? Um, how did this album come about? And I mean, did you like it? So he's all recently married, it's 93, and he's back with Niall Rogers from Let's Dance, that I guess was extremely successful. So maybe he's trying to recapture some of that success, some of that mainstream success, which he certainly didn't get with Tim Machine. Um, but you know, there's some artistic success maybe with Tim Machine, maybe a little bit, tiny bit, tiny bit. I think there was a, yeah, I think there was a little bit, but also I think, I mean, you're looking at a lot of artists who came through the eighties and not all of them came through the eighties well. Um, Lou Reed, uh, Iggy Pop, um, they were looking a bit tired. The Rolling Stones, my, uh, a lot of those bands that came through the 80s were looking a bit weird. Uh, Bowie basically had had an, a wedding and wrote an album about it. Um, also, the, the time, like there's stuff on there about, was it Rodney King? Um, yeah, the title like track was, a, was about the LA riots or written in the aftermath of the LA riots. I don't think it's specifically about the LA riots. But it does have a slight whiff of ebony and ivory about it. Um, the Paul McCartney. Oh, never good. <laughs> I know. It's it's sort of it's cringy. I have to say, but I sort of don't mind it as a tune. It's one of my the better ones on there, I'd say. And it's um, okay. you know it's not exactly sort of chock full of cracking tunes, is it really? Or even interesting experiments. It it falls between any any of those stools. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting for the fact that Mick Ronson's briefly back before he passed he away. Is, yes. um, but apart from that, um, and there's, again, there's some cover versions, which, are they any good this time? We've talked on previous episodes about how Bowie's cover versions are really bad. It's not, it's not so much that they're bad, so much as that they never really seem to come anywhere close to his, his own work. They, they, they always seem a bit superfluous. You know, there's like so on this is what I feel free. Actually, I don't remember it from the album, but it does. It, <laughs> you know, that probably pretty much sums it up. It's just Bowie doing "I Feel Free," but there's nothing. He doesn't bring anything to it. Yeah. And, but he just tends to. He does, does tend to like when he does covers. It's like here's an album. There's nine songs. Three of them aren't mine, and they're not as good as the ones that are mine. So it's all exactly. question. You never get the sense that he did something really special with the cover. I don't know. I mean, contradict me if you feel that that's not true, but I've said it in an episode so far, and I'm sticking to it. I'd say later in his career, I really enjoy some of his covers, but okay. maybe not at this stage. All right, well, we'll hold on to that. For we'll we'll we will, get to them. We will come back to them. Uh, I believe on my notes, I have some written down for, for, for yeah. So we'll definitely come back to some of those um, at that point. Um, it's fine. I mean, it's much better than the, the, the terrible albums at the end of the 80s. Uh, Never Let Me Down was so bad that anything that came after it um, was held as a return to form. You get a lot, I've, I've looked at a lot of reviews over the past week or so, looking at, uh, listening to all these albums, and there's probably five or six reviews ago. This is the best stuff since Scary Monsters. Yeah, it seems to be the the phrase that comes back time and time again. Um, I don't think this was. No, I I don't think it was either. And I think, yeah, for once the covers and his own songs are equally kind of forgettable. Really, they don't really stand. Well, 
Well, stand out. Well, that's probably a good time to move on then. Um, now, when we were starting to put this together, the original idea we're going to look just at the studio albums and not get distracted by any any other stuff. Um, we did briefly touch on Labyrinth in the last episode, and we're now going to take a, a slight detour to the Buddha of Suburbia, which was um, a mini series in the mm -hmm. early '90s in the UK, about four or five episodes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jonathan, what, 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 what took your? Um, I mean, it was a commercial failure, right? I mean, it didn't really even chart I, i've said this a lot in the last few episodes i've been horrendously wrong most times but i'm pretty convinced this one was a bit of a flop jonathan yeah absolutely i mean it's it's um <laughs> it was largely experimental and sort of instrumental with bits of cut up um vocal and things like that but it's got like at least three really good songs on the title track is a really good song the buddha of suburbia Dead Against It, which he tried to record throughout the 90s. He tried to stick that on other albums like Earthling. I think he tried to record it, re-record it for that and never did. So it remains just on there. And, and the final track, which he puts on one outside, he ends that with it, the next album. But it, there's quite a lot of parallels between those two, I think, one outside and Suburbia. Just the experimentation, which he really continues into one outside, but it all starts here. And apparently, it took him six days to write and record the Buddha of Suburbia. I mean, it sounds like it, oh. to be fair, but it, um, yeah, quick, quick yeah, I think I, I think that's it. I mean, maybe he was freed up a little bit from uh, the pressure of having to do a Bowie album. You know, this yes. is, it, it's a Bowie album, but it's not a Bowie album. Uh, Emma, did you have time to listen to the Buddha of Suburbia? I, yeah, I certainly did. I certainly did. Um, I love the book, love the book. But no, I did, I did, I quite enjoyed it actually. Um, I, I read that it, it did have some fans. Um, Mark Hooper of The Guardian said it was his best album for 25 years. Right, what was 25 okay. years? Okay. Right. So there you go. 1970, right? So we're talking, what, Hunky Dory? <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's basically his best album since David Bowie, David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't actually like David Bowie, does he? <laughs> He was obviously a big fan. He was obviously a big fan. But, um, but am I right in thinking some of the music, or quite a lot of the music on it, didn't actually feature in the film? Yeah, Why none of it did. I remember watching it. None, none of it, it did. I don't remember the Bowie thing. Besides none of the, it did. the title oh, wow. track that was on the outro, even the intro music, it starts, so we, we watched a little bit of it. The first episode one, scene one, is Kooks at the very beginning. But oh, yeah, really? besides that, the Buddha Suburbia song only features on the outro. Mm. It's, it's like one of those movie soundtracks where all the songs are on the final credits, uh, mm. just back to back to back. They're not actually in, in the film uh, uh, at all. Um, one thing mm. I, I found about um, at this period, um, unlike say the Beatles or so, Bowie started to take control of his own back catalogue around this point. He owned everything. Uh, and so he was, he had a hand in um, the, like the sound and vision box set, uh, re-releasing everything with, with appropriate artwork and B-sides, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, is this just, an, is this a perfect example, do you think of, of Bowie being, getting back in control of his career rather than some of the missteps he took in the eighties? Um, well, he's certainly doing yeah, what he that. wants to do. I don't think it's quite an odd move. It's not the move of someone who's, craving success like i suppose he was in the 80s or trying to find some form this is this is very cutting loose and just really trying things i mean okay. it's, in many ways that that it seems very typical of him throughout his career to me that he he, he never shied away from a challenge did he? he he was always willing to try something different um just give it a go and other people didn't like it fair enough you know he was already moving on to the next project He'd become quite safe in the 80s in comparison to this. I suppose Tim Machine was, was doing that, but the 80s were quite a sort of safe, not rock the boat kind of time for Bowie, I think. Well, talking about the experimentation, etc. cetera, um, Bowie's early, most experimental periods had, had one factor that was quite uh, common, and that was Brian Eno. Um, and moving on to the next album, Eno's back, right? 
Yay. At last. Yay. <laughs> um, and you, even when you look at the track list, you can tell, oh, this is not just the nine, nine, ten songs. There's little bits and, and whatnot. I mean, and how was this done? I, I, heard, I heard it was all written in the studio and just basically improvised and they just they, they went with it. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, tell us a bit about the next album. Yeah, it was. It was all from improvisations in the studio and there was a hell of a lot of material apparently, but I think you get that with excessive um, improvisation. And um, he was also cutting up lyrics, which I don't think he'd done for a while, but I think he started that in the late 70s. Actually, earlier than that, he was doing that, I think. But this time he was using his, his Macintosh computer, all the rage back then. 95 and using a, a piece of software called a verbicizer into which he fed wait, lyrics. Verbicizer. The, the verbicizer. Yeah. Wow. If only we had that technology now, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know what that would have done. <laughs> okay. I mean, he, at, least, at least with this album, he's doing something interesting. Whether or not um, it's everyone's cup of tea. It's definitely something interesting again. Uh, we talked in the last episode about how the 80s ended up basically with him dressed as an accountant singing about his, his personal assistant. Now he's got Eno back. He's, he's doing something good, well, interesting. It might come across occasionally like pretentious cyber wank. Um, what was the full title of the album? It was the Nathan Adler Diaries, A Hypercycle. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean <laughs> Could you think of a more 90s uh, <laughs> thing in the world? Oh, yeah, yeah, cyber. We'll put cyber in it. Um, Emma, what did what did this do for you? I mean, it's interesting at least, right? Definitely. I mean, it's very obvious that Brian Eno's back, that's for sure. Um, I never really liked Hello Space Boy at the time, but, but I have got quite a soft spot for it now, I have to say. Um, and I spotted that there's some jazz, um, which obviously we're going to see more of. So um, a small plot of land is definitely on a jazz tip. Um, but it's a much darker sound, which, which I, actually prefer, I actually prefer. I definitely prefer it to the last two albums. Um, and um, one thing I wasn't so keen on was the spooky voices. So the, the Baby Grace, the horrid cassette. And um, Ramona Stone is properly scary. <laughs> which is not necessarily what you want from an album to, like, to be spooked no they kind of um, yeah yeah it, it's a little bit distracting maybe but um, it sounds like they're having fun with it anyway they're, they're certainly experimenting and having fun and can't really argue with that there's a strange facet to Bowie when you listen to all his records back to back where you, you start to and you, if you start to focus on the lyrics and what the songs are about which to be honest when I think of Bowie, I don't notice this so much, is there's this idea of Bowie and his image of himself as the sci-fi writer. Like he fancies himself as J.G. Ballard or William Burroughs or something. And he keeps sort of doing these semi-sci-fi concept albums, of which this was one, I think. And yet, to be honest, at his best, you don't, you, you don't want that. I mean, okay, Ziggy was successful Bowie. I mean, yeah, he literally became, he literally became a, a, a megastar with an invented <laughs> space. And, and that works, I guess. But I guess that works. I, I guess because when you when you look under the surface of it, he seems to be trying to do all this kind of dystopian narrative stuff. But when Bowie's successful in his sci-fi sort of ventures, it's actually when it's anything but dystopian. Ziggy was pure utopian. It, it, it was all about joy and, and all the kind of transgressive stuff. But he kind of he kind of keeps trying to explore more kind of dystopian sci-fi. And um I don't really, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I think for the most part, it's just this thing that you're aware he's trying to do and never really seems to be fully successful. I don't think he ever wrote his great sci-fi dystopian album that he seemed to be grasping for. A lot of his work's about characters though, isn't it? And um, well, you've certainly got plenty of characters here, even if they are dystopian, but um, that is something he, he does well throughout his career, really. I've got the concept here, if you want to hear it. Yes, please. The actual concept. I wrote it down. <laughs> what was the, the actual <laughs> premise? It's the diary 
of investigator Nathan Adler investigating the ritual murder of 14-year-old baby Grace Blue, um, who was okay. murdered for art. It was a murder as art. She might get that from the, the album. I, she might I, get that from the, the album. I go back to my original comment, occasionally pretentious cyber wank. Um, this album sort of drifts into... Borderline <laughs> QAnon stuff, that is. Them... <laughs> That's not the first time QAnon has been mentioned on, the, on one of our Barry podcasts. So there's a, there is a QAnon theme. Um, so we talked about his sci-fi sci influences. Um, and then the next album is, is called Earthling. Um, and... I mean, a little bit, a little bit of it sounds like he released a normal rock album, and then somebody did some drum and bass mixes uh, on the B side of an EP. Um, some of them sort of work, some of them don't. Little Wonder, absolutely great track. Um, the rest of it, I don't know. I mean, John, Jonathan, I mean, it, the rest of it trails off for me a bit. I mean. Earthling? <laughs> yeah, no, mm. I'm the same with this one. It's not terrible, but it isn't isn't amazing. Um, it tries to do sort of things, doesn't it? It tries for the drum and bass thing. And it, it, it tries for industrial, but he, he never quite gets any of these things right, really, with the big guitars and all this stuff. One thing I will say, though, um, Little Wonder was um, written about each of Snow White's seven dwarves. Yeah, I read that. What? And he wow. ran out of like a line. <laughs> and apparently he even makes up his own dwarves as well. He's not, not satisfied with the seven. He oh, has to come up with my God. Dwarves. Is that why it's called Little Wonder? <laughs> I mean, he's literally going, oh, that's a bit... You think, right, when, nice you, when you look too closely at David Bowie lyrics, it kind of spoils <laughs> it. Don't, just, don't go there. I just have this image of him, like, bending up, because he was quite a tall guy, bending over... <laughs> you little wonder you and I'm patting them on the head oh Emma and before we have that image of a uh, little wonder being about the seven dwarves um how did Bowie's uh experience in drum bass and industrial uh work for you um I mean I think I'd say it does start with the best track for me which which is little wonder um I quite like Dead Man Walking as well. Um, Seven Years in Tibet does feel like a, a long track. Um, but in many, in many ways, I thought it was great to hear him experimenting again in a different way, different way to the previous album. But one thing that slightly puzzled me was um, that I noticed the producer credits. It's co-produced by Reed Grabels and uh, Mark Platty. And given that they're both guitarists, it, it, it just doesn't really come across as... Um, a guitar album in many ways. I mean, obviously with all the jungle and drum and bass going on. So that just seemed a bit surprising. Yeah, Reese Gabriels doesn't strike me as your go-to producer for a drum and bass album. Absolutely. Well, maybe he had nothing else to do on the album. <laughs> yeah. um, well, talking of, talking of Gabriels, um, the next album was his last one, the last we hear of him. Uh, Jonathan, on your, on your uh, curation, um, you mentioned that actually it's, it's Cabrels who, who dumps Bowie. Yes, yeah. absolutely. How? What? what? What was the beef? I think they recorded a lot of, a lot of material for the, um, the computer game. The Nomad Soul, Omicron the Nomad Soul, um, which sounds incredible, which I think Bowie is in. He's actually in the game. He features. Is, he is. Uh, uh, actually, I was actually up watching TV on Sunday morning and they were talking about uh, Stormzy being in a video game. And then they played a clip of David Bowie's one. And it is everything you imagine. It's David Bowie's face, bad computer graphics around it, around it and him going, hello, player. And it's just, yep, yeah, it, <laughs> just picture it. Um, so they, re they recorded some songs for this computer game whose title I already cannot pronounce. Um, but how did that mean that they fell out? Because Bowie didn't really include the, the best work on here for my money. It became a very bland, boring album when you listen to it in the end. He, he just let, they left all the good stuff. There's a couple of songs appear on a B-side to Thursday's Child. 
we all go through and no one calls, I think. And they're really good. I mean, they're good in a kind of outside way. If you like those weird bits of outside, the spooky, the spooky little tunes of outside, not the really experimental stuff or the, or the kind of voice stuff, just the spooky little songs. They're really, really nice, those two. And that apparently it's because one of the main reasons was they, they weren't included on the album. Reeves just didn't, didn't have that at all and up sticks. I don't know how true that is. Does that sound? It is. Does that sound? I did read somewhere about how they were starting to, uh, Gabriel said something afterwards about how Bowie just didn't seem to be listening to him anymore uh, and wanted to bring in a different bass player and I, whatnot. I read that he wanted to do, a uh, Bowie wanted to do a collaboration with TLC or somebody. Yes, having it, he kind of walked away, and that just sounds like such an incredibly like up himself thing to to quit over. Because you figure if Bowie wants to do a collaboration with TLC, you let him. Yeah, that we might have missed out on something amazing right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like your your guitarist who's worked with him for ten years. Yeah, but that's David Bowie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, that, you know, Reeves, it Reeves was probably Gabrosen a long time though, wasn't it? It was probably long enough for a decade or so. One thing about yeah, this yeah, album no. they did do, though, is like the first album to be available for download. Yeah. Before its physical release. Yeah, I mean, again, can not only taking control of the actual financial side and uh, of Bowie, you know, and, um, I think later on he put himself on the stock market or something, but Bowie did Bowie. imaginative things outside the actual music. Um, and being at the forefront of downloadable uh, tracks in the 90s um, is, is one of them. Although, for me, this is the, the whole thing just sounds really dated. We've talked about in previous pods about some Bowie albums are timeless. Um, Emma, for me, listening to this, I can go, yeah, I know exactly when this was recorded. Um, how, did that, how, how did you find it? Um. It feels a bit pedestrian by comparison to the last two albums, I'd definitely say. It's quite chilled, isn't it? It's quite chilled. I can't really get excited about it. Um, I don't think it's really an album that grabs the listener. Um, but I think, it, I think it's got some gentle charms. I quite like Survive. Um, and I also I noticed it got to number five in the album charts in the UK. It didn't do so well in the US, but um, I was quite surprised to see that. Hmm. Yeah, and also the cover, I'm just looking at the cover. The cover actually looks like it could have been a TLC cover. Um, just a sort of 90s font and all dressed in white. Well, that was the 90s. And it, there were some good moments in there. And then obviously sort of limped towards the end. Um, Bo was still, I think, trying to move on to the next thing all the time at this point and maybe had seemed to be running out of steam a little bit. I think even NME magazine uh, and the, the quality of music journalism that it is uh, held up, did an article about how David Bowie was this embarrassing relic from the past. He, he left the 90s um, not fully recovered from, well, the 80s, I guess, which moves us um, nicely into heathen. Uh, Emma, this was this was Bowie's first p new millennium. Um, this was post post nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. So this is this, 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 there's a new it's a new world, and is it a new Bowie, Emma? Um, I'd say probably, possibly yes. Um, it's certainly considered a return to form, um, and it sees him working again with Tony Visconti. Um, a lot of the tracks um, actually started, well, not a lot, sorry. Some of the tracks started life on Toy, which was an album that was never actually released. So that was quite interesting. And that, that album was quite a lot about looking back. Mm. But um, Virgin clearly didn't want to release it. And there was talk of scheduling problems and things like that. Um, but whatever the excuse was, they didn't actually re release it. So Bowie left, he left the label, um, but Columbia, Columbia took him on and he was able to release Heathen under his own ISO label instead. Um, and you are left wondering whether Virgin might have regretted that because obviously it was hugely successful for him. 
and um, yeah, did did very well and saw him sort of move in a new direction. Um, and what, and what yeah. direction was that? Um, I mean, he, he just seems to be performing it with, with a great confidence. Um, it's a really cohesive album. It really flows. Every track on the album for me works really. Um, some of the tracks maybe look back slightly, but he's also looking forward. And there are actually three covers on this album, but I would say that all of them are great. I, I mean, personally, I, I, I really like them. He does, he does the Pixies cover, he does Cactus. He does I've Been Waiting For You from Neil Young. Um, and they're both bands um, or artists that he covered with Tim Machine um, in live shows. So, so he comes back to them. And then there's also the cover for um, the I Took A Trip On A Gemini Spaceship cover actually relates to his Ziggy Stardust character in that the person who wrote that, his name is Legendary Stardust Cowboy. And he wrote, wrote the song back in the 60s. But um, when Bowie found out that he'd fallen on hard times, he actually decided to put this track on the album so that he would get royalties from it. And it's a very, very different version, very different version, because I think it's quite out there, the original. Um, but, but all of the original tracks on the album um, are fantastic, I'd say. Um, there's Slow Burn, there's Sunday. The first track, Sunday, is really haunting, and otherworldly. Um, and several of the tracks, strangely, feel like they could have been written because of what happened in New York, because of the 9-11 attacks. But in actual fact, most of the album had been written before that happened. So and I think even Bowie turned around afterward and said it was a bit spooky. Um, a little bit like maybe some of Nick Cave's recent work where he composed it before events sort of overtook the album in a way. Um, mm. So maybe it's a little bit similar to that, but... Um, yeah. Um, Nick, you, you sort of leant forward like you were about to say something. Well, no, it was just interesting, the point about the legendary Stardust Cowboy and how he covered him simply because he'd he heard that he'd, um, probably not solely, because he'd heard that he'd fallen on hard times. But um, the same thing came up during the 80s, that he did put a bunch of Iggy covers on an album simply because he'd heard that, you know, that, or he knew that Iggy was uh, struggling a bit. So There's an interesting way of using his uh, star power, in a way, to kind of help out people who are... Yeah, just need a little bit of a boost. I, I think that's it. I mean, I think, I mean, we've talked before about how there's some terrible cover versions in the past. I, I totally agree with them that I think that the ones on this finally start to work. Um, do you think, I mean, we've talked about how he uses cover versions to show his influences, to talk about his influences. Um, Jonathan, um, do you think there's also an argument that he uses cover versions to sort of try and stay relevant? Um, doing things bands like the Pixies um, to show, look, oh, look, I'm not just the guy who liked the stuff in the 60s. Um, I also like this stuff. Yeah, he's still looking back to Tim Machine there, actually, isn't he? Because they were influenced by the Pixies. Did they actually do this one? Did they cover Cactus? But I know that it's, it, they were very influenced. By it. He's still there. He's still in Tim Machine. That's where we are. That's where I think we are. he covered Debaser, didn't they? I think I think Tim Machine used to cover Debaser, but he's clearly a fan. Uh, um, so, Jonathan, yeah. I mean, in general, I mean, what did you think about this album? Well, I, I remember buying this when it came out, and I remember being really surprised, pleasantly surprised, because I thought Earthling and Hours were, were pretty weak albums. So this had some genuine classics for me that I really love, like. Everyone says hi. I think he's just fantastic. It's a great song. I think it's all very nice and middle-aged. What, what I would say about this album, what he's doing here is he's doing everything that he did on ours, but doing it really well. And it, however middle-aged and back-looking-y ours is, good word there, um, he then does that and looks to the future, but he, it just all sounds so good now. He seems more happy with himself, maybe, and he can be middle-aged and still be good. I think that's a very good point, actually. I mean, he kept trying to move on to different things and he does feel like he's finally happy just being Bowie. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that's echoed on the next album, Reality, as well. I think they're pretty much um, a pair that go together, like you would have uh, some, of the, some of the Berlin albums that obviously 
this one came after this one. And I think Heathen and Reality are pretty much a Bowie who's like, who stopped being a comedian. And now he's just Bowie and everything's just sort of all right. Nothing, there's no major highs, there's no dramatic failures. Everything's just sort of, yeah. I mean, Emma, where, where was reality, apart from having another terrible cover, uh, where was reality for you? Well, I, I, originally, I, I found Heathen maybe a little bit more immediate, but reality is, is a real grower. And um, I, I really love the album, actually, um, but it just it took a little while to click. Um, but Bowie started working on it literally immediately when he finished Heathen. So, so it comes out within a year of, of Heathen. I mean, it's incredible, really. He was obviously just, you know, completely in the vein and just, just you know, he, he was, he was um, you know, unstoppable in many ways and just, just went straight into it. Um, and it starts with Nicola Star, which is, people um, have suggested maybe that alludes to 9-11 as well. Um, there's some lines in there which are, are totally relevant um, but um, it, it sort of looks back again there's the, you, that's something that seems to creep in now there's you know he's looking back but he's also looking forward so um, that's definitely seems to be a theme but um, there's another couple of um, covers as well there's um, Jonathan Richardson Pablo Picasso which is a really punchy cover um, there's, it's not actually a cover, Dave, um, but, but it's definitely a nod to Ray Davis, who's, who's somebody that he greatly admires. Um, and... Um, um, but I think, that, I think that is the thing. I mean, he's, he's got comfortable sort of looking back. Um, this also seemed to be the first album um, in a long time that got really good reviews. Not just the occasional person going, this is the best since Ziggy Stardust, mm. but generally across the board. Um, Nick, where are you? How, how are you with um, middle-aged, comfortable Bowie? <laughs> Nick. Oh, sorry. I completely missed it. You addressed me there. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally fine with middle-aged, comfortable Bowie. Um, I do agree that it seems to be that the 21st century marks a point where he kind of, yeah, he settled down, he found a kind of, he, he was comfortable with himself in a good way. Um, and if anything, it does sound most like a kind of 21st century version of this late seventies Bowie, which I'm fine with, because that's the best bit. And, and, and is there a thing of basically the nineties was a bit of, Jesus, check out embarrassing granddad with his leather trousers. He hadn't recorded anything after whatever the last one in the nineties was, hours. Hours. Uh, you know, you could imagine him just sort of fading away and then people would, you know, have their kind of Bowie retrospectives where they talk about how great the early stuff was. But, you know, he, he had that kind of comeback and his, his last few albums, I think, are all pretty strong. Jonathan, I mean, where, where I mean, obviously you, you had to work your way through some of the dirt in the 90s. Um, how, I mean, we've looked, we've looked at Heathen now, obviously with reality, um, where are you on on comfy comfy old Bowie? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it should be bad because it should be the antithesis of what Bowie's all about—being experimental, trying different things. But somehow it somehow it works, and it, it shouldn't do. And I guess that makes it even even better anyway, because it's the opposite to what he always said he would do and said he did. So I think you know it's remarkable, really. Actually, these albums are good. Just, just to say that the other cover on the album is George Harrison's um, "Try Some Buy Some," um, which I think again is 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 really effective. It works really, really well. But um, you just mentioned the sort of maybe slightly cringy '90s Bowie, um, and he sort of almost well, probably not referring to himself, but he sort of almost addresses that we never get old. Um, it sort of the, uh, covers the cliche of a rock star who, who who just doesn't want to age really, you know. So I don't know. It's almost like maybe he's maybe he's thought about you know a new direction and um, and off he's gone on that, in that direction. But I, I definitely say Heathen had had really strong reviews as well. Um, but yeah, certainly reality is is a really strong follow up. And then I mean, it, it looked like. 
Bowie was back and he was releasing an album a year. And then he had a heart attack, I think, when he was touring in Germany. Um, and then he sort of just sort of disappeared for 10 years and then came back like storming with with the next day, which I think was I think it was up for the Mercury Prize. Is that right, Emma? It did. It got nominated for several awards, um, and it and it came it came after a seven year break. Um, so it, it was all um, recorded under you know a shroud of secrecy. It even had a code name, the album. Um, so I think some people did assume that he he sort of given up potentially, or or maybe still wasn't quite well. Um, but then he came back with this, and and. Um, it was again hugely successful for him. I mean, he's having a, a great stretch. Um, it was the fastest-selling album of the year at the time, and um, it was nominated for several awards. And it's it's full of really strong songs. Um, and um, and again, manages to look back and forward at the same time. I think one thing I noticed from this is I couldn't I couldn't pick the style. Um, sometimes you go, well, this is a glam rock. Bowie. This is an, a, a drum and bass Bowie. This is this is the accountant period. Um, this one I could I couldn't place it on any on any particular style. Even uh, the ones that had come earlier on in that decade. He, he does seem to sort of um, reference lots of points in his career. Really, on this album, that, that's that's definitely something that he does. Um, I'm really effectively scary monsters here for me in quite a lot of ways. It's that scary monsters vibe, the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, um, and I think the thing about this one, I think they, I think he's trying that a little bit in the last two, but I think they really pull it off in this one. I'm not, I'm not saying the songs are as strong as that period, but it sounds great. The the playing is really good, instrumentation's really good. It's got that that feel to it. It's really good. Yeah, um, and even over the cover, the cover was basically. What it's hero, it's the cover of heroes, but with a big white square on it. So everything is being sort of referenced back. Um, and I can't imagine many other artists could pull that off. I mean, I think it's great. I love it as a cover, but I, who else could do that? Yeah, it's almost, yeah. I mean, I, an iconic cover, shove a white square in front with the, the title of the album in a fairly plain font. It's good, isn't it? It's okay. good. Um, I mean, I don't know where the conversation is going to go in a minute after I say this. Um, I think Next Day was a, a fantastic album. I also think it was his last good album. Um, uh, <laughs> as we move into Black Star, I'm, there are stunned faces on this Zoom call. I'm, I'm guessing Jonathan would also have a stunned face if his camera was turned on. Um, and I'm not saying this to be a, a deliberate dick about this. Um, Black Star, I mean, yeah, it was, it's the jazz album. I don't have a problem with jazz. Um, it's a fine album, um, but is there an argument that can be had that people hold up Black Star because it came out the weekend of Bowie's death? Um, if we decouple them as things, is Black Star actually good? I mean, the next day was a great album, and then we've got Black Star, which came out on what? And then two days later, I think. Yeah. Is that correct? Bowie, Bowie yeah, passed away. Um, am I am I a Philistine? Do I have tin ears? Am I wrong, Emma? The last one. Um, I mean, I, I think it's an incredible piece of work. Um and I mean, actually, as the album was released a couple of days before he actually did pass away, people were already raving about it. But I think people certainly looked at it in a in a very different way after that event because it's it's impossible not to, especially when you know what he was going through while it was being recorded. And um, I mean, he people uh, Donny um, Donny McCausland, who who recorded with him, said he was so committed and so energetic and in great spirits through the recording. Um, so, you know, it's just something that he absolutely put his heart and soul into. And I can only really commend him for doing something a bit different with that album because it, it, it is quite different really to anything else that he's done. Um, 
I know he did say earlier in his career that, that people either really accepted what he did or they pushed it away. And he just said, I guess that's what I am. And, um, you know, I'm sure he'd forgive you for not enjoying it. But um, there's, <laughs> if I dare say that, but, um, but no, I, I just think it, I think it's incredible. But I do think, I mean, I do think getting past the first track and going on through the album, it, the first track just blows me away every time. So I'm almost tempted to stop there sometimes, but it, 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 I think, you know, it needs time. You need to spend time with it really. And in truth, when it first came out, I listened to it once and then I just couldn't listen to it again for such a long time. Um, so I feel like I, I want to give it more time now. Um, but at the time, like maybe a lot of people, I felt like I couldn't really. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't listen to it again, but for totally different reasons. <laughs> um, Jonathan, they say that everybody gets to a point in their life where suddenly we decide that jazz is fine. Um, was this Bowie's? <laughs> I think it was. I think it was. I remember, actually, I remember hearing it before his death and before we found out he was dead. So I remember my feelings on it before that point. And then my feelings were, oh, he's doing outside again. Because of sort of right. jazz dark influence on that. So I, I was totally in that frame of mind before it suddenly became an incredibly sad album. For me, it was kind of outside part two. And then it became this really sad, sad, sad thing. So it's strange really, but I, I remember my feelings on it. I don't find I think, it a bad album at all. That, that, I think one of the things that makes it a remarkable album is that it feels like, and again, I, you totally can't uncouple it from the knowledge of his death. You just can't. Yeah. But I think um, mm. when you listen to it, it's the sound of somebody who is, aware that they're dying and is just kind of in a way quite reconciled with that in, 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 a, in a way that's actually very heartening it's not a sad album at all i mean i think in yeah, some sure. ways because because death isn't something anybody really oh. talks about um it, it, it's sort of typical of bowie to sort of push you to to, to sort of really explore that and um you know, he, he never he never really wanted to feel safe and he just always wanted to be just outside of his comfort zone. And and I think that comes across in this last piece of work as well, really. It's great yeah. that he went back to that because he really was doing the safe thing for like three or four albums before that, whatever it was. He really had gone into safe, Bowie. And so he'd gone sort of, then he had his final chance to make something. It was back to that Bowie and he pulls it off, which is good. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought I would be the lone voice of, of slight dissent on this, and and I'm well aware there are there are some albums that I probably should get, and, and this is one I just haven't found to be. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so we've gone through quite a lot. Um, we've covered almost twenty years in this in this episode uh, alone. Um, I want to talk a little bit about legacy. Um, some artists truly can be said to have a, a long-lasting legacy. Uh, some people's legacy disappears, gets tarnished. Uh, some people tarnish their own legacy during their career, Morrissey, I'm looking at you. Um, whereas Bowie seemed to have a legacy, lose a legacy, got a legacy back, and then in his death has become something totally different. I mean, not many artists break hearts when they die. I mean, Nick, what is Bowie's legacy? Whew, that's, that's, you've, you've gone for an example. Three words. Only <laughs> <laughs> oh, three words, I can do that. Bowie's <laughs> legacy is, I've run out, sorry. That words. Use a verbicizer. Oh man, I don't know. That's that's too hard. Go and ask someone else. I mean, for everybody, I mean, do we think? I mean, what? Who, who is influenced by Bowie? I mean, everybody. But can we can we hear Bowie in artists, or is the influence slightly less obvious? There's actually artists who very much want to be Bowie and very much want to sound like certain periods of Bowie, but there's certainly there's got to be a lot more to it than that. Um, I mean, he's he, he's an icon. And when you talk about tarnishing his legacy, I mean, I, I even think at his lowest points, his 70s iconic uh, sort of the, the version of Bowie that existed from then was never really tarnished. 
That, that kind of went on, you know, without any, didn't really matter what he did later on. Unless he had gone full Morrissey, of course. That would have made it more uncomfortable. Well, to be honest, he did get through, he got through cocaine and fascism uh, without, without tarnishing it <laughs> at that point. Um, but is there, is there a thing about how, because he had such good, so, so many good albums in the early days. He was knocking out classics. And then compared to them, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, you've got, well, this is amazing. Why can't you do this anymore? It's not like, oh, here's a, this album's fine. It's, we want, we want, the, we want the old Bowie back. I, um, I, I think I'd say the challenge for him was, was, it was not to keep revisiting the same things that he'd done before, you know, um, and to try and express things in a different way. And he, and he loved to mix things up and he was constantly evolving all the way through his career. And I'm sure what he's passed on to many artists is, is just his fearless approach, um, you know, to music, to life, to, even to death with Black Star. Um, you know, you could never really second guess him. And, and that's the way he wanted it, really. You never knew what, was, what he, what he was going to do next. You never knew, did you? But, you know. Yeah. But no, I think that's it. And I think, I, I think he, I know what he didn't, at any point really damaged his legacy. But I yeah. think as we alluded to earlier, if his last album had been at the end of the nineties and that's what we were looking back at, yeah, those albums were maybe not a good bookend to his career. Whereas he did seem to, at least throughout his last four albums, get comfortable in himself and release things that were interesting and of note. Uh, shall we say? Um, so, a couple of questions. Number one, favorite Bowie albums. Um, I, Nick, you've listened to everything again now. Are you going to say Black Star just to just to? <laughs> I was going to, but now now you put it like that, maybe I should. No, it's it's still Station to Station. I love that album. Uh, close uh, followed by Low. That's my that's my Bowie period. Uh, okay, um, Jonathan. Yeah, I suppose I've settled on it being um, Scary Monsters over the last few years, and that's kind of how it's remained. It's changed throughout my life, but I've settled on that one, I think. Emma, so Emma, um, and yours? Um, I'd say probably um, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars and Station to Station are two of my favourites, definitely, but there's just so much to pick from, isn't there? There really is. And um, I, I think you can have different albums for different moods, to yeah, be honest. Absolutely. Um, okay, so if if you, dear listener, are still with us, and hopefully, obviously, you are, um, we have <laughs> compressed um, nearly 30, 30 albums into three episodes of podcast. Uh, is it 30 albums, Nick, or have we just invented that number? It's in that ballpark. I mean, yeah. we must have done about 10 albums an episode. Yeah, sounds about sounds about that. I mean, I've listened to so much Bowie in, in in the last week or so that my head's sort of exploding. But it has been a fascinating um, journey. Glad we split it into three episodes rather than the original two that was planned. Because, I mean, yeah, everything would have been crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, so we talked a little about legacy. We're going to wrap up in a second. Um. I'm not even going to ask Nick anymore because if you've been listening to the last two episodes, you'll realise that I have been getting or trying to get all of our contributors to to do their best or worst Bowie impression. I'm ready uh, now. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. What? Oh, we're coming back to you at the end. Jonathan. No, I'm joking. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, do you have a Bowie? Well, I, I was going to do Little Wonder, but you did Little Wonder really well. And I don't think, I don't know if you remember do that. It, do it, do it, do it, do it. You did actually do Little <laughs> Wonder early on. So I feel I should have a last minute, last minute change. Off camera, it'll be easier. Okay. Are you, no. Okay. You doing it? I'm going, I'm going. Oh, it's coming then. It was coming. You don't rush me. <laughs> he's actually literally giving birth to David no. Bowie. I've got a little Bowie in there. And we're all glad he's coming. I'm gonna I'm gonna robot <laughs> just at that point. I'm gonna verbalize as this comes out. Oh. You little wonder you. 
Yes, that was worth the wait. Fantastic. Yeah, you can leave all the I know how to build it up. The drama. Um, just, drama. I mean, I mean, just for the actual, just to explain to the podcast, um, if if this didn't seem like there was a long build-up to that, there was about eight minutes of, of just waiting around for Jonathan to do a run-up into that. No. <laughs> Emma, do you have a Bowie? Even if it's just saying the name David Bowie in a David Bowie accent. With Larry the Lamb sort of voice. I don't think I can follow that, to be honest. <laughs> I think I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> that was brilliant. It's brilliant. Okay, so... Um, I mean, I want to thank everybody from all the pods um, that we've gone through. Uh, there was pod one with, with Lyle, Emily and Ben. There was episode two with Steve and Zoe. And obviously there's this episode with Emma. Emma, thank you very much uh, for all your hard work and for joining us on this. And Jonathan, again, thank you very much. Um, Nick, it's been emotional. <laughs> absolutely um, um i'd like to say what will be on the next episode but at this moment we've got about four or five currently in planning stages we don't know which one will be out next um obviously you'll find us on beat.rehab slash temp fans um we might be changing the format in relation to the spotify version of the podcast in uh for the next episode but that's next episode um Go and listen to some David Bowie. I might listen to Black Star again and, and see if I'm right or wrong. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Great. Emma, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nick, I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Oh, the music now is also Jonathan's as well. Despite his tireless efforts editing these podcasts together, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume that even Ewan doesn't listen to this bit, right? So, if I was going to do a Bowie impersonation, this would be the place to sneak it in, where nobody will hear it. It probably won't happen though, because I've got more important business to attend to, thanking our Bowie Part 3 contributors Emma McDermott and Jonathan Fisher. As mentioned, Jonathan also created the Temporary Fandoms theme music you'll have heard at intervals through this recording. It's good, isn't it? Thanks, Jonathan, and although we've already established he won't hear it, thanks to my co-host Ewan. That's Bowie done and dusted over three episodes. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to make, and while we were doing so, we were also thinking ahead to what's next. We've got some really exciting episodes coming up with some very special contributors who we can't wait to tell you about. So, to make sure you don't miss those, subscribe to us, like us, join our Facebook group, all of that gubbins, I'm Nick Hilditch, and I'm a black star. I'm a black star. I'm not a gangster.